We'll start today's show with a conversation with Phil Allen Jr. He's a pastor, speaker, and writer. His latest book, The Prophetic Lens, The Camera and Black Moral Agency from MLK to Darnella Frazier, examines how video can be a tool to help facilitate cultural change and also work against it. He offers examples as varied as D.W. Griffith's Birth of a Nation, to Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing, to the role of news and citizen-captured video of events that can shape public conversation. I start the book off with uh, the unseen violence for chapter one and, and seeing blackness as a liminal existence, like this in-between space where we see athletes, we see celebrities, musicians, you know, we see that image and we see the far, the other image of um, criminality, um, the presentation in media of uh, the hood, so we see these images, but what we don't see is, is the in-between, which is both the beauty and the tragedy. So we don't see the profiling. We don't see the daily profiling, violence, brutality, microaggressions that's experienced. We also don't see the beauty. We don't see the resiliency. We don't see the, the, the family life, the love. We don't see all those that in-between. So the, the, the camera has the, the, the potential to capture that. And in this case, capturing the violence, because for decades, if not centuries, we've said this has been happening to us and we're not believed or it's minimized. And so you go back to civil rights movement. That's why the camera was so vital. Dr. King realized they had to capture it and then broadcast it to the rest of the world to show them this is what's happening. And now your conscience is gonna be burdened. What are you gonna do with that? These images, whether it's the Edmund Pettus Bridge, whether it is Rodney King, whether it is George Floyd, we are talking about 60, 70 years of being burdened. And one would hope if they took a wider view that this burdening would have meant something more, something faster, right? Yep. So, yep. so how how should we deal with that? Like we've seen these images of violence that perhaps were or definitely were minimized or were not believed, but it's taken so many of them for so many of us to go, oh, when when will this you know begin to make a coherent change for? the majority of Americans? Great question. You know, um, I think while there's progress and while there seems to be more, especially after 2020, summer of 2020, there seems to be more people aware. There's also a, a counter movement um, that starts with this allegiance, allegiance to what does it mean to be American? And I would say, allegiance to whiteness, not so much white ethnicity, white skin, but allegiance to this ideology, this, this worldview, um, white supremacy, white sovereignty. Um, and I think for a lot of people, it's both, con for some it's conscious and for others it's unconscious, but it's this preservation of that, that kind of counters because you have to admit, to, in order to, to, 
to, to move forward and to, and to fully grasp and embrace and say, okay, this is real and I, I'm angry about this. You now have to also acknowledge, admit, face, confront the reality. Um, and a lot of my white brothers and sisters are afraid of that. Um, I've, I've, had, I've, I've taught a class once in, in uh, Joplin, Missouri. So I taught a class and um, went through a survey of the history from the, from the slave ship, from the transatlantic slave trade to today, just showing a, a, a through line, not just black history, but native Japanese immigrants, what have you. And a, a young white girl um, said, to, she, was, she came back out after the break and she was angry, clearly on her face. She had anger on her face. And before moving on, I said, let's process. Like, I thought she was mad at me. <laughs> I'm just sharing facts. And she said, I'm angry that my parents and my grandparents never told me this stuff. And that has sat with me to this day. So there, there is something that her parents and grandparents want to preserve. They don't want the kids to know or, or, or whomever to, to have to deal with this. And that's part of the problem. Until that is more and more um, white folks are willing to confront, detach the whiteness from, from their identity. That's a whole other conversation. I believe that, that the idea of whiteness going back to the 17th century stripped even white people of um, their, their, their ancestry, their identity and created something new. So I think that's part of the problem, this allegiance to and this preservation of whiteness um, for some. Well, and this idea, it's white supremacy, but just white as the default, like everything that's not white is the different. Yes. And that can begin to warp, you know, how how people think and talk. I think we probably all have friends or associates who, when they're talking about an incident, They'll say this man, but if that man were black, suddenly that adjective, that modifier, that descriptor is in there. And it's just this sort of whiteness as default. Like, unless I say something different, I'm talking about a white person. Yeah, yeah. And it's built, it's been built into the American uh, psyche, collective psyche, that um, it doesn't. I actually had a few conversations <laughs> where a guy, Describe people in a church, the people of color he described as um, Hispanic, Black, and other a couple other uh, races. And then he said, and there were some Americans. <laughs> I said, oh, and I just looked at him like, and so the default, going back to what you said, the default is that these white folks were American. These other people were American too, but they were people of color. And he said it so effortlessly. Do you, going back to the, the young woman and, and, and the people you talked to in Joplin, do you think there is a generational move, a generational shift that can give us optimism? Absolutely. I have, I have been in classes. I have taught. I have TA'd in enough classes over the last seven years that the next generation and I think that may be true of every generation more open to change and progress than the previous generation or than their parents and grandparents. But I am hopeful because I see it more and more. Um, and I, I've, see, I've seen, I've had conversations 
where more and more um, white folks are even confronting mom and dad. And not so much in, a, in an abrasive way, but confronting them and, and educating them. Um, some of them have sent my books to them or my film and, and, and have been able to engage in that way. So I am hopeful that there is a, a, a shift. But again, there's also that the underbelly. There's also the element that's trying to preserve. And that's then we get into the banning of books and critical race theory and things of that nature. Um, and I don't understand why people do not want the whole truth. There has to be some, I don't know, reconciliation or self-examination. What has my role been, either yep. consciously or unconsciously? Yep, yep. Yeah, um, one of the things I, I share, and I think the camera kind of invites this, is before we even get to reconciliation, there is the work of solidarity. Mm -hmm. There is the work of the confrontation, the, the, the acknowledging that this reality, confronting it. There's the work of taking a risk, um, the risk in relationships, the risk in um, losing what you thought was true or reality and, and embracing something new and different and scary. Um, the, the risk of um, opportunities um, to stand with those who have been facing injustice and inequities. And, and that to me will, will set us up for reconciliation, this, this work of solidarity. That's what Dr. King, I believe, stood for. And you saw it in, 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 in the protests, you saw it in the sit-ins. There are images where you see, obviously it's majority black folks, but you'll see white and Jewish people um, risking bodily harm. In the book, the, the cameramen, from those news stations, they risk their lives too. They're, I call them allies for, for, the, for the movement because without them, where would we be if we didn't have the videos? Then it took, you know, the cameras had to be, you know, networks. And, yes. and, and you had to be of some means to be able to film it, whether you're filming Bull Connor with the fire hose. Now we can all be uh, videographers, and that has changed it again, right? It's not just at these announced events that are happening as part of a, a large movement. It's unfortunately, seemingly every day, there comes yeah. some video. Do you think that is moving the needle, the, the frequency with which we are exposed to the transgressions against people of color? Yeah, I think two things with that. I think the frequency is necessary because that's how frequently it's happening. It's how often it's happening. I mean, I'm one person and I, I've never been, I've never had a gun pulled on me by law enforcement. I've never um, been beaten by law enforcement, but I've been profiled, pulled over, spoken to abrasively, um, just dehum the dehum dehumanizing interaction uh, multiple times in my own life. I've been threatened multiple times by, by white folks, um, mainly on church campuses, actually, <laughs> uh, ironically. I've been threatened, called the N-word multiple times. Um, and so those, so I'm one person. Right. So multiply that by millions, right? So it's happening. So by necessity, we have to have, have these videos come out frequently. The other part, though, is it could numb people 
to it, it, it could it could get people to the point where it's it's so normalized that oh it's just another one. And so that's that's the danger in that. But at the same time, you can't not every life matters. So you can't you can't not show them. Right? I, it takes me sometimes weeks before I can watch a video if I watch it. Um, Jalen Walker um, video. I didn't watch it for a number of weeks um, before I could even have the energy to, to, to see it. So it, it can have two effects. It can have the, the numbing effect. It can have a traumatizing effect, or it could have a, 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 it could move the needle to continue. Yeah, well put. You, you mentioned that some of these incidents when you have been dehumanized and cursed at and threatened have been on church campuses. You're a pastor. What role do churches, white churches, black churches, whatever churches, have to fill, fulfill to help us become a better society? I think churches, particularly more right-leaning evangelical churches, they cannot allow it to be safe anymore. Safe to be that way, to say those things, to threaten. Um, if you never talk about the issues, if you never teach on it, if the pastor isn't passionate about the injustices and inequities, then why would the congregants or visitors be? And when, when and you, especially when, when, I, when it happened to me, I was in a predominantly white, um, multi-ethnic space. They boasted of diversity, but it was a culturally homogenous space. And they had to feel safe enough to, to call me the N-word and threaten me, like everything was going to be okay. Um, it took everything in me not to respond with violence. Um, it, one, one was in front of people. So it was almost like it was this major test for me. Like, what are you going to do now? Now I was, I was almost prepared to lose my job. Um, but again, I think when, when churches are silent on these issues, as if it's not a big deal, then it doesn't matter if I say, or if I threaten, it's not important to, to, to us. It's safe here. And as long as those churches are silent, they're saying it's safe. It's like dog whistling without whistling. Is there a challenge because you might run into people who don't think what they're doing or aren't aware of what they're doing as a micro, let alone what you just described, being called the N-word and threatened, but other conversations that there isn't even the self-awareness that this could be a microaggression or this could be, you know, feeding into a stereotype? Which is all the more reason why there has there has to be not only preaching and teaching, but also a, a, a different voices. And, and when I say different voices, I don't mean just a black person, a Latino, an Asian up there preaching and speaking or teaching, but perspectives, making space for that. Um, because you're right, there are people who don't realize, and I, I tend to be someone that if I know you, or if I have a feel that I think you're a genuine person, um, I'll give grace, I'll extend grace. If, you, if I feel like you, didn't, you, didn't, you don't know what you're doing. Um, but if it keeps happening, especially after I've, I've mentioned it to you, um, then I know there's something, there's something else going on. Yeah. So 
if, if we begin, if we never talk about it, if we never bring this to the center, if we never make this an issue, because what's happening is you have a congregation full of people of color who will sit quiet, quietly and suffer, silently and suffer while they experience those microaggressions because they don't feel like it's safe enough to say anything. And it's not being spoken about, it's not being talked about. But when you have some, someone like me that would come up and would give those examples or would say and, and include that in my sermons to bring my experience to the pulpit. Now you have people sitting in the, in the pews who say, I experienced that too. Yeah, thank you for saying that. You named it, you, you, you brought it to the forefront. And there may be people that may disagree and think it's not that important, but there are people who are, are co-signing and saying, thank you for identifying my experience. That's why it's important. You mentioned, you know, talking about the beauty as well. I think we, we have, I have a tendency to, to think about the problems, to think about the through line of history that has led us there. But also rising up, you know, the beauty and the excellence and the successes now, having said that, we have to be aware of history and the through line, right? The redlining, the, the not giving GI loans to soldiers of color coming back, and D.W. Griffith and Birth of a Nation. And I think back to this movie. One of my favorites as a kid, which was um, um, Sierra Nevada, I think, with Humphrey Bogart. Mm. Eh, typical bank robber sort of thriller. In the middle, there is a character. It isn't Step and Fetch It, but it's another character actor who often was put in this sort of demeaning, ah, shucks role. The only reason the character is in there, as I watched it again 30 years later, or 40 years later, was as this comic relief, this caricature. And, and I think, okay, I saw that as a kid through all the other images I saw through the 60s and 70s, and I think you have to realize, and I feel like I'm a cliche saying this, but I think you have to realize the images that were given to us as children and what that can do to subconscious and how we have to combat that. I don't know if that made any sense, and it wasn't a question, but... It, it makes a lot of sense um, because it has the same effect on people of color, on black folks, because we internalize that too. And so you start to believe that that's how you have to be. Hmm. Or that's what it means to be good. That's what it means to be um, accepted, is to be less threatening. Um, and, and so th those, those images matter. The representation in front of the camera matters. Representation behind the camera matters. And this is where the, the Spike Lees and the Ava DuVernay's come into play um, because they give us an opportunity to see the whole picture, to tell the whole story, tell the whole narrative. Um, and and that's, that's the, the thing about the camera is not just that it, and this is part, part of the beauty part, it's not just that it shows us the violence, um, but it gives an opportunity to create a, a, a disruptive, a new, fuller, richer, more beautiful narrative that's not being presented, it's not being told. So that's the, that's the power of the camera. So uh, Malcolm X, I mentioned this in the book, he used his camera for that reason. He wanted to show the beauty, the power, the upward mobility, 
the, the good things about the black community, but he, and he wanted to show those images to black folks because he knew they needed to see themselves in a different light other than what was being presented to them. Because he knew, like most of us know, it's being internalized. When those images are presented enough times, it's internalized. And then what happens, you start to hate, you, you hate yourself. You hate those who look like you. And that's a whole nother conversation. But I think it's important to show or to talk about both the trauma and the resiliency, particularly from the black community. And I think the camera has the capacity to do that. Uh, we have to, we can't look away at the, at the trauma and the suffering. We also can't look away at the beauty. And it's not an either or, it's a both end. The name of the book is The Prophetic Lens, The Camera and Black Moral Agency from MLK to Darnella Frazier. Where can people read more of you or hear more of you? You can go to www.philallenjr.com, P-H-I-L-A-L-L-E-N-J-R.com. My social media is um, at Phil Allen Jr. And Instagram is at Phil Allen Jr. IG. Uh, but every, everywhere else is at Phil Allen Jr. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you. I appreciate your time.